everyone to our worship service this afternoon. And also a warm welcome to any visitors or guests with us and those that wish they could be here but haven't. We wish that uh, your time on the live feed is also to the glory of our Lord. We um, have a few announcements to make that uh, Nick and Wilma Schutten and their children Emily, Morgan, Miles, and Alyssa have come to us from Chilliwack. A warm welcome to you. And also there will be a council meeting this Wednesday. Our worship call is from Philippians 3, verse 7 to 11. But whatever I gain, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that God had depended on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. We welcome Pastor Tim to our pulpit. Good afternoon. It's a great joy to be with you this Thanksgiving weekend. We can give thanks and praise our awesome God together. And as we begin our worship, I ask that you will please rise if you're able to. Uh, as we come to worship our God and King, uh, we come with the utmost humility, of course. And so we come confessing our dependence. Congregation, where does our help come from? Our help is in the name of the Lord. And our great God greets us with his blessing from Scripture. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we just read a portion of our text together as our call to worship. And our, our sermon today is about the first part of our Sardis vision statement, about our desire to know God more. So let's sing about that topic as well, our desire to have the Lord uh, make himself known to us with the words of Psalm 98, stanzas 1 and 2.
One of the ways that we can come to know our God better is through God's law. In the Ten Commandments, which we read each Sunday, uh, the Lord reveals uh, his perfect holiness, his holy nature, and his holy will. Also, through the law, we come to know ourselves a little bit better. We come to know the sinful nature of our hearts. And so our desperate need for a Savior, the Savior Jesus Christ, who kept God's law perfectly on our behalf. Let's keep that in mind as we read the law of God found in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter, your male servant or female servant, your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, in response to God's law, uh, let's sing together, and we'll uh, ask the Lord to use his word, his law, uh, to teach us about him, to teach us the things most worth knowing. I will ask him that with the words of Psalm 119, stanza 24. Before we open God's word together, uh, let's come before our Lord in prayer. We'll ask him for a blessing on our worship. 
Oh, Lord, our Lord, you are an awesome and incomprehensible God. That you're also a God who is happy to reveal your nature and our nature to us through your word. Lord, one way you do it is through your holy law, as we just read together. Lord, in it we can see your perfection, your holiness, your faithfulness, and your goodness. Your words and your law are so good. They're like better than pure gold and finer and sweeter than honey. Yet, Lord, as we read them, we realize that we fall short of every one of these commands. We constantly sin against you. Lord, so often we turn away from the way that we should live. We ought to live. Instead, we run to things of this world which distract us and draw us away from you. Lord, we ask that during this worship service and every worship service, that you might open our eyes so we might know how we ought to live, and that we also might know how far we fall short of your perfect will. We ask that you'll reveal our sins to us, and not just reveal our sins to us to crush us, but rather to bring us to repentance, to make us turn from all of our sins and run to our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're so thankful that you teach us that love is the fulfillment of the law, and that Jesus Christ loved you and loved us perfectly. Thank you that we can find the righteousness that we need in him. Lord, as we turn now to open your word, we ask that you'll confront us and that you'll convict us by it, and that by your word you'll teach us the knowledge most worth knowing, teaching us about your holiness and your perfect nature, as well as about your abundant mercy and love that overflows the earth. We pray these things only in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as is mentioned in your liturgy sheet, if you took a look at that, in our 2 p.m. services for the next uh, three weeks, we'll be going through the Sardis vision statement. Uh, as a church and just as, as Christians, the Sardis vision statement uh, notes what we're committed to. We're committed as a church and as Christians to knowing God, to loving others, and to sharing hope. So today we'll focus on the first one, to, to knowing God in many ways the most foundational one. Specifically, as you'll see in our text, we'll focus on the theme of knowing Christ. We'll keep that in mind as we turn now to our reading, which is the, the chapter of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, our sermon will primarily focus on the first 11 chapter, or first 11 verses, rather, but we'll read the whole chapter for context. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, 
I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mind set on earthly things. Their, um, but our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So far, our reading of God's word. As we just read together, we read about Paul's inability to become righteous by the law and so his desperate need for Christ's righteousness instead. So we'll sing about the same theme from hymn 28. Just for now, singing stanzas 2 and 4.
Like I mentioned, our text is the first uh, 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3, which we just read together. Uh, So I'll just read uh, for you the verses 7 to 11 again. Just uh, probably the most important part of our text. Philippians 3, we'll begin at verse 7 once again. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So far, our reading for now. Brothers and sisters, you have been given an elephant, and you can't give it away or sell it. What do you do with it? Apparently, that's a pretty typical job interview question. It's an intimidating one, isn't it? What in the world are you supposed to say to that? One of my friends was once asked on a a job interview, not quite as ridiculous. But if you had to be one, what Disney character would you be and why? Those are tough questions to answer. Job interviews are intimidating enough without trick questions like that coming at you. Those sorts of questions can be difficult because they're seemingly so random and insignificant. But yet other questions that you can get in a job interview, they can be hard to answer because they're really deep and incisive. Apparently, I was looking it up online this week. Apparently, another common job interview question is this one. How would you answer this? What is your greatest ambition in life? That's a tough question too, but not because it's ridiculous, because it's incisive. It makes you think. That might be more difficult than the Disney question or the elephant question, because it's not meaningless. It's significant. Sinclair Ferguson says about this passage, if you ask the Apostle Paul that interview question, not the one about elephants, who knows what he would say to that, If you ask him the question about his greatest ambition, if you ask the Apostle Paul, what is the goal, the guiding principle of your entire life? Sinclair Ferguson, he says, he he might just ask you, well, have you never read the third chapter of my letter to the Philippians? I lay it out quite clearly there, Paul might say. My greatest ambition, the goal of my entire life is well known. I want it to be very clear. The goal of my life is this. I want to know Christ. That's what this passage is all about, Sinclair Ferguson says. Paul's ambition, knowing Christ. And that's the foundation of our church's vision statement, and it should be all of our ambition as a church and as individuals, as Christians. I want to know God. I want to know Jesus Christ. So this afternoon, we'll study Paul's ambition, and we'll study it in two parts. First, we'll see Paul's old ambition, 
And secondly, his new ambition in Christ. So first of all, Paul's old ambition. And Paul begins this section of his letter to the Philippians by saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. As one commentator says, we're getting a letter here from Paul. We need to remember Paul is an old man. He's in prison. He's in Rome. And yet we're getting a letter here from the happiest man in all the Roman Empire. Why can Paul be so joyful when he's old, when he's in prison, when he's been beaten and betrayed? Why can he tell the Philippians who certainly had their own struggles, were undergoing persecution. Why can he tell them to be joyful? Well, he says he's going to tell us. Specifically, he says he's going to tell us and the Philippians again. He says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He's going to tell the Philippians and he's going to tell us something he had told the Philippians before. Something he told them in real life, but something he told them already in this letter as well. In this passage, beautifully, Paul is going to tell them and us the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul, suffering greatly in prison, can be the happiest man in Rome. That's why he can tell these people to rejoice whatever the circumstances, rejoice even when sorrowful. And this, Paul says, to tell them again is no trouble for him. And we can see how sharing the gospel with them would be joyful, and it would be no bother to Paul. But it's very interesting, if you look at the beginning of our text, Paul says sharing the gospel with them is safe for them. There are all kinds of things in our lives that can make us feel pretty unsafe, right? I don't know about for you, but sometimes I'm stuck awake at night, I can't sleep, and you hear a bang in the house. That can make you feel unsafe. Uh, You can walk downtown in the dark. Maybe you would feel unsafe then. Maybe there would be a huge storm or a potential uh, natural disaster. But yet Paul says that there's something that could make them feel unsafe. The, The biggest threat to these Christians, and it's not a storm, it's not the dark, but rather it is people who are very religious. There are false teachers going around distorting the gospel. And it's important for us to realize the context here. Paul had previously, before he was arrested, he had been going around boldly preaching the good news uh, that you and I and everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is right with God, that we have his righteousness, not our own. But a group of religious people called the, the, or of Jews called the Judaizers were following him around wherever he went. And after people began to believe in Christ and completely in his righteousness and his obedience to the law, these impressive religious people would come around after Paul left, and they would say, hey, very good for you new Christians. You believed in Jesus Christ, and that is an excellent start. Good job. But now, if you really want to be right with God, you're going to have to do a few more things than that. They'd say, you need to live like a Jew, like we live. First of all, the men, they need to get circumcised, and after that, follow certain food laws and follow the Jewish religious calendar. And these often uh, zealous, excited new believers, they would typically be fooled. They'd be happy to do this, to follow Christ. But Paul warns them here very urgently. And it reminds me of one time when uh, I was working as a landscaper. And someone told me, gave me an urgent warning, but I didn't really take it seriously 
at first. Uh, I was driving around in a bobcat and a skid steer uh, with a, a sharp, pointy tooth bucket on the front. And I whipped over to one side of the job site, and I opened up the door, whipped out, and pulled some stakes out of the ground, threw them in the bucket, hopped back in, and went on to the next stakes I had to go pick up. And uh, one of my co-workers, my foreman, uh, he stopped his machine, and he yelled at me. He said, do not do that. And so I kind of like, okay, whatever. And I didn't take it very seriously. I didn't know why suddenly he was so upset. But then later on, uh, my foreman stopped me, and he, he called me aside, and he told me a story. He said once he was working on a construction site like we were on, and he was off by his own, uh, on his own in a corner, and he did exactly what he saw me do. He jumped out of a machine with a sharp tooth bucket, and he yanked a stake out of the ground, and he fell backwards onto his spine. He, he thinks he blacked out for a couple of minutes. Now, eventually, in a huge amount of pain, he crawled through the dirt as far as he could to get to his car on the road to try and grab his cell phone and call someone for help. And the paramedics told him he was lucky it wasn't worse. He was lucky there was no permanent damage. And you can bet, after hearing that, my perspective changed a little bit. That real-life experience got my attention, and I never did that again. I took that warning very seriously. And that's what Paul is doing here. Because this seemingly doesn't seem like that big of a deal. There are religious leaders just advocating for following and trusting in some laws and traditions. But look what Paul says. He gives a strong warning. He says these Jewish elite, these people who call Gentiles, those who don't live like Jews, they call them dogs. Paul says at the beginning of our text, no, they are the dogs. Not friendly dogs like we have today, remember as well. Stray dogs, disease-ridden dogs, dangerous dogs. Paul says they say they're righteous. Actually, they're evildoers. They call themselves the circumcision proudly. They're not the circumcision. We're the circumcision. We're God's people. All they are, Paul says, is mutilators. How does Paul know this is so dangerous, even deadly? How did he know that this is a destructive, false gospel that they're selling? Well, Paul tells us, he shows us in the rest of the passage. Paul says, I was one of them. I have lived this way before. I can tell you from experience. Do not go down this path of confidence in the flesh. Don't even take one step, Paul says. Whatever confidence and good works they offer you, Paul says, I had more. Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. In other words, Paul says, I didn't just live as a Jew, I was born a Jew. We were from the great Israelite tribe of Benjamin, very well respected. I was raised speaking Hebrew and keeping all the uh, Jewish traditions. Well, many people, they didn't. Of all the Jewish sects, Paul says, I entered the most rigorous, the most studious, the most respected, and the most strict. Paul says, I was a Pharisee. I kept every law in the Bible outwardly and many more laws besides. I memorized the scriptures. That's what Pharisees did. And of this elite class, 
Paul says, of this class of the best of the best, the Pharisees, Paul was at the top. He says, I was zealous. I persecuted the church. That means I was an active Pharisee. I was a leader, a defender, and an activist in this group. As for the law, Paul says, I was blameless. Now, Paul never would have said he was perfect. Even Pharisees knew they weren't perfect. They had some sin somewhere deep inside. But Paul is saying here, if you combed through every law in the Bible and all the extra laws they had and you looked at Paul's life, you would have to admit he was squeakly clean. You couldn't find anything on this guy. No one could. Paul explains this was his previous life's ambition. Or as he says, this was his previous confidence. Paul out-Phariseed all the other Pharisees and out-Jewed all the other Jews. And Tim Keller explains this very well. He says that all of us have to admit we all have some things, or at least we all have something, that we too, like Paul, put our confidence in. Something that we think, or at least something that we feel, that makes us acceptable. Maybe you can think of what yours might be. Maybe I can think of what mine might be. Something that makes us acceptable before strangers, acceptable before friends and acquaintances, acceptable before ourselves, so we can look ourselves in the eye, we can respect ourselves. In fact, even if we'd never dare to admit it out loud, we all have something we put our confidence in in a way that we think or we feel deep down inside. It makes us acceptable before God. And Tim Keller gives two perfect examples from his own life. He says that one time in his life, things uh, at his church, the church where he was a pastor, uh, they were getting quite rough. And so naturally, as the, the church, he, or as the pastor, rather, he, he was upset. But eventually, over time, it became clear, especially to his family, that Tim Keller was getting too upset about the problems. He was getting too anxious and too stressed. His wife eventually asked him, Tim, what is, what is going on? You know God has got this, and you need to trust God, not yourself. And of course, she was right. But yet, Tim Keller was still so distressed by the things going on in his church. Later on, though, years down the road, things started going wrong, not in the church, but in their family. They had some problems in the home. And then, Tim Keller says, things flipped. His wife suddenly started getting strangely unsettled and upset. And then Tim had to be the one that stepped in and say, it's okay. You know God's got this. He, he had us in the past. He's got this too. And then they realized, Tim Keller said, that we've all got things we put our trust and confidence in. Tim Keller was worried about the church, not just for the church, not just for the sake of the gospel and Jesus Christ. He was worried about the church for his own sake. The things that were going south in the church, he was worried deep down inside, even if he would never admit it, that they would reflect badly on him. That if things went down that trajectory, maybe he couldn't look other people in the eye. Maybe he couldn't look himself in the eye. Maybe he wouldn't be acceptable in front of others or in front of himself. Maybe he wouldn't be acceptable before God. I think we all can relate to this, can't we? Our job, our reputation, our family, our character, our expertise. These aren't bad things. These are, these are mostly great things. 
But these things can so easily, deep down inside, become our confidence. Where we think our acceptability comes from before others, before ourselves, even before our God. And if we do, Paul is warning us here, if these things become our confidence, we are in serious danger. Because these things will let us down. Paul says from his own experience, I've been down this road. This is a false gospel. And it only leads to destruction and despair. My lineage, Paul says, my reputation, my achievements, my morality. Here's my final assessment, Paul says. In verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word can mean trash or garbage or filth. Or as some translations say, it can even mean animal dung. Paul says, I threw these things, my greatest achievements, I threw them out as filth. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness, a right standing, an acceptability before God that comes from the law, from my own works. But rather that which comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's old ambition was to create, to form, to craft some sort of confidence in himself. His character, his identity, his accomplishments, his religious accomplishments. Now he sees that is garbage. That is worthless confidence. There's no hope. There's no salvation there. And he sees that because of his new ambition in Christ. That's our second and final point. Now Paul's new ambition, his life's goal, as we said, was one thing, one thing alone. Knowing Christ. And for that reason, looking back, he threw out everything as trash. And we need to realize he didn't just throw out the bad things, did he? He didn't just throw out his sins. But no, if you look back on his list, he threw out the best things about himself. Those were garbage, he said. And we need to wonder, is Paul saying that it was bad for him to grow up Jewish? Was it bad for him to be circumcised on the eighth day according to the Old Testament law? Was it bad for him to be a Pharisee, to memorize scripture and try and obey God's law? And likewise for us, this question is important. Is it bad for us to be born in a Christian family? Is it bad to go to Bible study or care groups or prayer groups and church twice a Sunday? Should we count all these things as filth? Is it bad to be baptized as a baby? Paul says, of course not. He answers in Romans chapter 3. He explains exactly what he's saying here. Paul, in the book of Romans, he's just explained that all people are sinful. Gentiles, like us, born in sin but also Jews in the Old Testament who who had God's law. He says they were actually more guilty because they had God's law clearly and still sinned. And so then Paul asked the same question. What advantage has a Jew? Or what value is circumcision then if it makes them more guilty, if it can't save them? Then Paul says, much in every way. Why does circumcision and the law have much value? He explains in verse 2 of Romans chapter 3. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, the, the Jews, they had the Old Testament scriptures, and they had all of God's many beautiful promises. 
And then skipping ahead to verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, Paul says what the value is. He says that the Jewish people, they had the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, and the promises that the Jews were received. And he says that all of these things have great value because in verse 21, they bear witness to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All these things that Paul listed, in a sense, they're amazing. Circumcision, even being a Pharisee, the Pharisees, we know them as bad guys. They, they studied the scriptures. They took God extremely seriously. Studying the scriptures was a great thing. Being from the tribe of Benjamin would have been a huge blessing because all of these things could have helped Paul know the Messiah, know Jesus Christ. But they didn't, Paul says. And so in that case, they were animal dung. They were filth. And this should be a scary thing for anyone who's grown up in the church, attended church for a long time. Circumcision, being born and raised a Jew, studying and memorizing scriptures, they got in the way of Paul knowing Jesus Christ. Isn't that an intimidating thought? These things on their own, they made Paul so self-assured, so confident in his flesh, in checking off these boxes, he didn't feel he needed a Savior at all. And actually, when the Savior Jesus Christ did come, what did Paul do? He hated him. He rejected him. He hated those who followed him. Jesus preached about the righteousness in him, apart from the works of the law, and Paul was enraged. He persecuted the church. He ripped apart families. He oversaw Christians being killed. And so Paul looks back on these good things and says they're loss. They're garbage. They're filth as long as they're by themselves. They're loss and garbage and filth compared to the true surpassing worth of actually knowing Jesus Christ. Likewise for us, Bible study, church twice on Sundays, being baptized, being raised, or raising your kids in a Christian family, these things are amazing, precious gifts from God. As long as they serve our ultimate ambition, Paul's ultimate ambition of knowing Jesus Christ, the one that all of these things point to, the one that all of these things are about, knowing Christ's nature, knowing his obedience on our behalf, his righteousness that he gives to us free of charge for us by faith, knowing Christ's love for sinners like you and me, his willingness to put our sins on his back and take them to the cross, giving us his obedience and taking our sin and shame and failings and the curse we deserve, the things that honestly should make it so we can't look ourselves in the eye, that others can't look us in the eye, that we would never dare to look God in the eye if we recognize these things. But here in Jesus Christ alone, in the Messiah, we have confidence. There, looking to Christ, we have assurance. Now we can look ourselves in the eye. We can look others in the eye. We can even be, appear before God in confidence because Jesus Christ is our perfect, spotless righteousness before God. Seated high in heaven at the side of God the Father and no one there can touch him. We can't touch him. We can't ruin him. One commentator notes 
Now, there's something really wonderful about the phrase Paul uses, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's because in our lives, we need to admit that there's a tendency uh, that things over time, what usually happens with them? Things. Typically, they get less valuable. They, they get worth less. If you get a new tool or a new toy, uh, it's exciting and new, at first very valuable. But over time, usually, it gets worse. It gets duller. It can even become, at some point, an annoyance, a liability. Eventually, something far better will come along that will surpass it in worth. It can't hold its value. And this can even be true with people, can't it? If you're a kid, when you're a kid, your mom and dad might be the best. The the highest value of anyone in the world. They're the biggest, strongest, smartest people in the universe. But then as time passes, as you get older, they're not. They still might be really good parents, but... They get a whole lot smaller, don't they? You start to see their cracks, their flaws. They're not perfect. But this text shows us that is not so with Jesus Christ. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Lucy, a little girl in that series, she had last seen Aslan, uh, a lion representing Jesus Christ, when she was a little girl. And finally, many years later, she sees him again. And as you know, you've probably experienced uh, when you are older and you go back and you see something that you saw as a kid, usually it's a lot worse than you remember it, right? A lot smaller than you remember it. Nowhere near as impressive. But with Aslan, it's different. For the first time in many years, Lucy sees Aslan. And we read, she rushed up to him and threw her arms around him. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy at last. And she gazed up into his large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are? I am not, Aslan said. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. We need to remember Paul in this passage He's writing this letter to the Philippians from prison in Rome. He's writing it around the same time he wrote his letters to the Colossians and his letter to Philemon. And you might remember from Philemon. I hope you do. Paul calls himself in that letter an old man. He's probably in his 60s and he had some hard years on him. He says he's writing as an old man. Well, this old apostle who had been serving Christ, worshiping Christ for many years, serving him and suffering for him, Paul nevertheless says, this is my ambition every day. I want to know Christ. He says in verse 10, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know him in his suffering. I want to know him in his death. We feel like we have to ask Paul of anyone in the world, of anyone in the universe, Paul, don't you know Christ enough? Paul, you, of anyone in the world, haven't you suffered for Christ enough? And Paul's answer is, not even close. All Paul wanted was to know Christ more. And Paul found it was in his suffering, especially in his fighting sin and living his new resurrected life in Christ, 
That is where he got to know Christ more. Maybe you know from experience that often that's true. It's suffering that brings us together. One time, a few years ago, I had uh, one of those awkward situations, where maybe you've had before too, uh, where you meet someone's mutual friend, and then our mutual friend, they left, and left me just with this stranger, with no warning. It was a bit of an awkward situation, and uh, eventually, our friend came back uh, a few minutes later, and he apologized, because he knew that was kind of weird. We didn't know each other at all. And yet, it was strange, because when he came back, he found that me and this person I, I had never met before, we were deep in conversation. We had found a pretty deep, instant connection. It was strange. Somehow it had come up that we both lost a sister a couple years previously. And we found immediately that gave us a lot to talk about. Not surface-level things to talk about. Deep things, personal things to talk about. Likewise, Paul says uh, he wants to know Christ even in his suffering. Maybe you too have some deep friendships that have formed overshared suffering. Well, Paul finds that suffering for Christ helps him better know the Christ that suffered for him. And you'd think that Paul could come up with all kinds of excuses. He's old, he's in prison, he's already done so much. And as Paul says in verse 12, he, already, he still has a long way to go. Perfection's a far way off. He says in verse 12, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Sometimes when something is far away, or something like perfection, or knowing Christ perfectly, is impossible to achieve, then we use some sort of excuse, that as an excuse to give up. But fascinatingly, Paul sees it the opposite way. Paul's an old man. He's been striving for years. He sees knowing Christ perfectly. Perfection is a long way off. And so he says, better get moving. Better get to work. Better keep going. Better use the time that I have left because there's so much ground to cover. There's so much more room to grow. So much more to know. And where does this motivation come from for Paul? Well, I came across a story from a pastor uh, whose friend started a, a pretty successful company. And uh, this friend of his, he joined in a meeting once. And into the meeting came Michael Jordan. You know who Michael Jordan is? Probably most of us do. Perhaps the greatest basketball player of all time. And this friend, he was just amazed to be in a meeting with Michael Jordan. But what amazed him by far the most was when he was in this meeting, Michael Jordan turned and talked to him. He addressed him by name, and he spoke to him about his company. In this meeting, he was getting to know Michael Jordan a little bit. But what blew him away was Michael Jordan knew him. That is the key to this passage as well. As we study God's word and as we go to church, as we read the Bible and get to know Christ, as we hear him speak in the scriptures Sunday after Sunday, we find out that Jesus isn't just talking to others. Jesus, through his scripture, is talking to us. As we read of this amazing Savior, the King of the universe, the Lord over all things, God in the flesh, we find out what Jesus Christ says in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I lay down my life for my sheep. We find in Scripture, we find hopefully in the preaching, 
that Christ isn't just speaking to many others. He's speaking to you and me. And he knows you and me better than we know ourselves. He knows us perfectly. And he loves us perfectly. And when we kind to find that out, then we can lay aside our self-righteousness. We can lay aside any other confidence we find out anywhere else. Our confidence in the flesh. Anything that we're grasping onto, trying to hold onto, to make ourselves acceptable in our eyes, or in others' eyes, or in God's eyes. Because in Christ, we find we are perfect in God's eyes already. We are deeply, deeply known. And we are deeply, deeply loved. And so Paul says, all I want to know is, uh, or all I want to do is know my Lord Jesus Christ, the one who knows me and loves me. He says this is the one thing I do in verse 13. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And I love what Sinclair Ferguson says here. Anyone who knows Paul, anyone who reads the scriptures, they would say, okay, come on, Paul. You are a busy guy. Everyone knows one thing that you do, you do a thousand things. But Sinclair Ferguson says, no, Paul would answer, you need to understand. I do one thing a thousand different ways. In a sense, it's like a young man, and we'll finish with this, a young man or a young woman who falls in love and starts a relationship. If you picture a young man or young woman falling in love and starting a relationship, in one sense, they're more content and more joyful and more secure than ever. Like Paul mentions at the beginning of our passage, rejoicing, whatever the circumstances. They found someone who they love and someone who loves them for who they are. But in another sense, this young couple, they've never been more dissatisfied in their life, have they? As much time as they spend together, it can never be enough. They want to spend more time together. As much as they talk, they want to talk more. It's all they want to do. They want to get to know this other person better, to know more of their love and more of their heart and more of their soul. And with this in mind, brothers and sisters, Paul is ready for the job interview. He knows uh, the, que- the answer to the question. What is his life's ambition? It's knowing Christ. That's all he wants to do. As we leave, we should ask ourselves the same question. What's our life ambition? Amen. Let's sing together in response. Hymn 28, stanzas 1, 3, 5, and 6.
let's come before our God in prayer. In our prayer, we'll remember uh, our new members, uh, Tanisha Holtfleur and the Schutten family. And we'll also remember uh, Liz Van Lar, who's looking forward to a milestone birthday uh, this upcoming Saturday. Uh, let's pray together. Awesome God and dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that we can approach you with confidence. Not confidence that we've built up or we've formed through our life or our achievements or our personality or anything else, but our confidence which comes only from Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, thank you for sending him to perfectly wash away all of our sins. Thank you for sending him so that through his life on this earth, he might perfectly keep your law and that he might impute, he might give his perfect obedience to us so that we can come before your throne only in his name. Lord, please help us more and more desire to know you and to know a Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We know Jesus says that this is what eternal life is, knowing you. Lord, help us never be satisfied with how much we already know you. Help us like Paul, uh, your servant, uh, who you gave to us. Help us always long to know you, to know him more. Help us to be perfectly satisfied and rejoicing in him, yet at the same time dissatisfied, longing always to learn and know more. Lord, thank you for this church community that you bless us with to support us and guide us and that we can meet together as we try every, every Sunday and uh, every days that our prayer groups or care groups or whatever else meets, uh, that we can try and study your word and get to know you more. Be more amazed by you and your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that we've been blessed with a, a few new members. Uh, Lord, thank you for bringing Tanisha Holtbluer here, as well as Nick and Wilma and their children, Emily, Morgan, Miles, and Isla. Uh, Lord, please help them to be blessed by their time here uh, in whatever ways that they get involved. Help them really come to know you and love you and serve you more. Lord, please help them also be a blessing to this church. Help them find ways that they can share and use their unique gifts that you've given to each of them uh, to serve the body of Christ and to serve Christ Jesus, our Lord, and our head. Lord, we ask that uh, you'll bless these new members here and that you'll make them a blessing as well. We also ask that you'll bless all of us as we go out to this week. Uh, we know a lot of people are, are suffering, or a lot of people are uh, celebrating, rather, a lot of people celebrating birthdays and anniversaries. A lot of people celebrating their family, celebrating Thanksgiving. Lord, you have given us so much to be thankful for. Lord, uh, we're thankful in particular uh, this Sunday for Liz Van Lar, who looks forward to a milestone birthday this upcoming Saturday. Thank you for your faithfulness to her and to her husband, uh, Jake, as they look forward to an anniversary as well. Lord, please uh, bless them and all of us uh, this Thanksgiving and this coming week. Help us to uh, focus all of our attention, all of our eyes on you. Lord, we ask these things not because we're worthy of any of them, but only in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and he is indeed worthy. Amen. <clears throat> At this point in our worship service, we have an opportunity to give our gifts to the Lord who's given so richly to us. And the collections for today are for the Asia Mission Board, uh, which supports mission work and helps equip Christians in Asia. Uh, you can read more about it in the liturgy sheet as well. Uh, after the offering, then we'll sing together uh, our final song of praise, hymn 79, stanzas 1, 2, 4, and 5.
Brothers and sisters, lift up your hearts to the Lord and go home in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.